characteristic, what defines me as a person, my primary identity, who am I and who are you at our core, the most important factor in there is that we are members of the church, the household of God, the eternal family of our heavenly father. Think about it this way. I know it's hard to say that because you would think to yourself, no, my earthly family is more important than my, than my spiritual family, like, than my church family. And I would ask you this, which one has a greater impact on your future life, the rest of your life going forward, your earthly family or your, uh, your spiritual family, your, uh, your biological family or your spiritual one? The temptation will be to say my biological one. They gave me my genetic makeup and everything like that, but let me give you an example. We've all seen the movie about Little Orphan Annie. Right? I used to always love to use the Orphan Annie example. Then I couldn't because so many of you were young and you had only heard of it, but then they came up with the Jamie Foxx version of it. So now everyone has seen the movie about Little Orphan Annie, so I can say this example. Little Orphan Annie was born into a certain socioeconomic class. She was born with certain parents. She has certain genes, certain biology, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then she was adopted by a very rich father at age, I don't know, let's say she was age 10 or whatever she was. Which of those parents will have a greater impact on the future rest of her life? Her earthly parents, who gave her her genes and her biology, or her adopted parents, who give her everything else going forward? What I want to say is, you cannot deny the biology that we have, the genetics that we have. You can't deny how we were raised and what effect that has on us. But the power of our adopted family to re is to redefine our life. And if little orphan Annie sticks with the father, then she's going to come at age 60, 70, 80, 90. People say, what had the greatest impact on your life? And it is not going to be her earthly parents. It's not going to be her genetics and her biology. What it's going to be is the one whose family she was adopted into because this family has the power to redefine everything. Because everything that she was dealt here, this family has the power to give new power over or, or to completely put it in a different perspective or to give her a different way of dealing with. And I believe the same is true about the church. Regardless of how you were raised, regardless of who your parents are, regardless of where you were born, the church is the defining characteristic. If we understand what the church is and what it means to be part of the church, that has power to redefine our life and give us a new life. St. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Members of the household. Not of the Jamie Foxx guy. Not of the Daddy Warbucks guy. But of who? Who has adopted us? God. King of kings, Lord of lords. See, your earthly family will one day go away. Actually, for some of us, it may have gone away already. Or it may still be there, but it's crumbling at the foundation. But your heavenly family will last for all of eternity. What unites you with your earthly family, blood type, DNA, whatever it may be, what unites us as a spiritual family is blood of Christ. Earthly family gave you your personality, gave you your temperament. Spiritual family gave you the spirit which was inside Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And I'm telling you that what the spiritual family gives us has greater power to define your life than what your earthly family does. And I want you to believe that. That's why one of the things you hear me say all the time here is that we are a family, our church family. We are brothers and sisters of one another. That's why I say when we're talking about our church, we talk about the brothers, the sisters. We talk about us as a family because we are a family. And I want everyone to really believe that you are part of a family when you're part of this church. You're not just part of a building. You're part of a family. And we're there for one another. And some people today are visiting our family, and we absolutely welcome you with open arms. Just like if you come to my family, we welcome you. And But we want more people to be part of our family because being a member of the family is not like being a visitor. 
visitor of the family. You come and visit my family, you only see the stuff on the outside. But the members of the family, they see the stuff on the inside. So we want everyone to be part of this family. But what we want to talk about in this series is what does that mean to be a member of this family? What defines church membership? And how can I say I'm part, I'm a member of this family? If I attend weekly, does that make me a member of this church? Does that say I'm part of the family? If I just show up every Sunday? Some would say yes, some would say no. If I give in the money box, if I attend weekly and give in the money box, that makes me a member? If I, do I have to believe something? Do I have to serve? Do I have to volunteer? Do I have to like uh, 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 give to a, a specific, like what is it that defines, what does it mean to be a member of this church? That's what we're going to talk about here in this series because we came up with a very specific definition. And in this series, we want to talk about the defining characteristic. What is it def what is defines membership in this church? What does it mean to be a member? And I'm talking about this in two contexts, okay, two kind of parallel tracks. What does it mean to be a member of the church? The church, capital C, church. And even more specifically, this church. What I'm going to talk about here in this series over the next six weeks is our core values as a church. And these define what does it mean to be a member of the church, but even more specifically, what does it mean to be a member of this church? What is it that you, as a member of the church, can expect of the rest of us and we can expect of you? We came up with that in 10 easy-to-remember phrases, which we call our core values, which is what governs who we are as a church. Now let me take a step back and tell you the story of how we came up with our core values, because maybe you've attended church in the past that maybe didn't have core values. You say, why does the church need core values? Isn't it just like in the Bible, we just believe with the Bible? Yeah, of course, but we wanted to be even more specific and clarify who it is that we are. We believe that we are a unique church, and we believe that God has a specific mission for us, bringing an ancient faith to a modern world. So our core values define, again, the, the behaviors, the expectations of you to me and me to you and you to and everyone to one another. Church started back in 2012. When we first start, started the church, we had to come up with some things logistically. We had to come up with, number one, a name. I'd never come up with the name of the church before. I thought it was just the church, okay, but you had to come up with a name. So we came up with St. Timothy, St. Athanasius, had a reason why. We had to open a bank account. And I remember when we went to open the bank account, there's me and two other guys, and we're like, we'd like to open a bank account. They're like, how much you want to put in? And I'm like, man, I didn't, know, I didn't know you had to put money in. I thought you could just open it. Like, you have to put money in. So I didn't have any cash on me, okay? One of the people over here had 20 bucks. So we was like, give me that 20 bucks. So he put down his 20 bucks. Now we have a bank account. And you had to figure out where we're going to, we had to figure out all these logistical things. We had a great team of people working, working on all these logistics. And then someone said, we need to come up with a mission, a vision, and core values. Father Anthony, that's on you. So I was like, okay. And I go to Google, how to come up with a mission, vision, and core values. Okay. And for sure, they're just like, you know, four or five questions, but there's nothing. Okay. There's, there's nothing, at least nothing good. So I said, you know what? Get all this junk out of here. I'm going to do what I, what I always do when I'm really stuck and I need to think about something, I need a place of inspiration. There's a certain place that I go, okay? Only in like, like when I really, really, really need a place of inspiration. I go to Panera. <laughs> because Panera is the best. Because you can sit there in peace and no one's gonna ask you to order anything, okay? Because it's just so big, it's, it's not like Starbucks where it's kind of awkward and it's kind of uncomfortable people sitting next to you. Panera's big enough where you can just get that cup of water and just keep on going back and forth, okay? And people think that you're gonna order something or you just did, so it's great. So I go and I have this booth in the back and I sit there in that Panera and I got my cup of water, you know, in the napkins, you make it look like you're just really busy over there. And I remember thinking, okay, I gotta come up with our core values. I don't know how to do that. So I started by looking in the New Testament. I look in the book of Acts and when I looked in the book of Acts, before I came up with the core values, I found something which hopefully if you're a member of this church is not new to you. I discovered in the book of Acts, if you look at it, 
there's five, what I call the five pillars of the church. Okay, the five pillars of the church, we did a series on this a couple of years back, so this hopefully is not new to you. With five pillars of the church, at any moment in time, based on the book of Acts, you should be able to take a snapshot of the church, as well as the members of the church, so this is at a church level and an individual level, and you should see five things at all times. You should see some kind of fellowship, someone in isolation, that's not the church. If, if people are isolated alone, that's not the church. They had all things in common. There has to be some element of worship and prayer. Obviously, that's a church. It's not just fellowship together for the sake of it or watching football games. There's some kind of prayer, worship element. There's spiritual growth. People are maturing. People are not staying stagnant. There's an element of sacrificing that's so clear in the book of Acts. The people gave all that they had, sold all they had, gave it to the apostles. And there's an act, a, a pillar of witnessing. There has to be some kind of evangelism. The church has to be growing. So I looked at this and said, these are five pillars. They're not really core values. They're kind of pillars. And I kind of put those over to the side. And I just kind of threw them over there. Then I just started to write. Okay, not type. Typing is not as spiritual as writing. I feel there's more inspiration when you write it. Something about the pen, the paper, okay? Something, you know, very biblical author, like parchment, something like that, okay? So I started writing. I just said, you know what? Just come up with ideas. And I just write, 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 write. I always start by just writing a lot. And I try to narrow it down later. And I just started, you know what? This would be a cool core value. I don't know what this means. But let's, let's, I just start writing, 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 writing. And then I circled back around maybe an hour later, something like that. I looked at you, I had like 15, 20 of them written down. 15, 20 potential core values. And then I said, you know what? Let me see if I can like group them because 15, 20 is too many. So I started to group them, you know, kind of, well, this kind of fits with that, and that, that kind of over there. Then I started to look at it. I said, you know what? I looked at my piece of paper with the five pillars, and I looked at the, the core values that I had written, and I realized, you know what? These two really fall under fellowship right here. Oh, that's kind of cool. These two fall under sacrificing. This one, if I change this word and I kind of group it with this one, then these two, what I started to notice, I had nine at the time. I had nine. And of the nine, every one of them, two by two by two by two, fit into one of these pillars. So I unbeknownst to me, like I wasn't trying to, like I wasn't trying to say, here's a pillar, here's values. I'm just writing stuff and writing stuff. And I said, you know what? These two fit under here. These two fit under here. And I had nine of them, so I only needed one to go. And I honestly feel those nine were totally inspired by God. And I tell this story in the membership group and I say, why is it that God didn't give me 10? You know why God didn't give me 10? Because God wanted to say, you know what? I'll let you play. <laughs> like, I'll give you one. And I felt like he was telling me, like, I'll let you be part of the process so I, you get a little bit of the credit of it so people can say you're a good priest, something like that. So I remember when I looked at it, I'm like, well, I need to fit one here. And then as soon as I thought it, boom, something which is deep inside me, okay, which we'll get to later, and it finished off our 10th core value. I promise you, in my heart of hearts, I will go to my grave believing that none of these core values came from me. This was the most God-inspired moments of my life, I feel, because God gave us a blueprint he gave us the vision of this is what the church should look like. This is how people should treat one another. This is how people should behave. This is how people should pray. This is the expectations. What does it mean to be part of the church, but even more specifically, part of this church? And to this day, whenever I go to that same Panera, I never sit in that same booth to eat. Because <laughs> to me, it's a sacred place. And I want to tell people, get up, don't you, like, you, this is a place of prayer, okay? But you don't eat in this place, okay? Because that, to me, is the most sacred booth in the entire world. So with that said, here's what we're going to do in this series. We got six weeks in this series, really five, and then the final week would kind of be a tie-up together. So over the next five weeks, starting today, over the, and then the next four, we're going to talk about one core value each week. But I said there's ten core values, and I said there's two per pillar. So for every week, we're going to go through one of the pillars. So today we're going to talk about the first pillar, which is the fellowship. We have two core values that deal with that. We're going to talk about one today. 
And the other one, if you want to know about it, you got to join a life group. So that's why I'm making a big deal out of this life group. That's why Susan said make sure you join a life group because we're only going to talk about half of the core values in here because a 10-week series would have been probably been too much. So we're going to talk about them half here, and then the other half you're going to get in your life group. So I really hope everyone did sign up for a life group because these core values are we are not a building. Obviously, this is not our building. We are not a meeting. We are not... We are a body. We are a family. And these core values, more than anything else, define what does it mean to be part of this family. Here's my hope. I always, at the beginning of the series, have like a goal. My hope is for you, at the end of this series, that you will look at these core values and you will say, you know what? It is a great honor to be part of this church family, but it is also a great responsibility. And I hope you will take that responsibility as serious as you see the great honor that's given to us. Sound good? Let's jump in. Core value number one is the best of them all, and I'm going to say that every single week. Core value number one is limitless acceptance. Limitless acceptance. Can we read this together? Limitless acceptance says what? Church family, read it with me. We believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. That person is sent by God and should be loved and accepted as such. When we first started this church back in 2012, I did a series, the first series we ever did in the well. It's called We Are STSA. It was back before even we had a camera. All right, so it wasn't even recorded. It was just recorded audio on like an iPhone or whatever it was. And it basically our church at that time was probably 50, 60 people, whatever it was. And I went through every one of the core values. First Sunday, we did this one. We are, STSA was the name of the series. First one was Limitless Acceptance. And it fell on Mother's Day. And when it came on Mother's Day, I said, thank you, God, because you just made it easy. Because who is it? More than anything else, my apologies to all the dads, including myself. Who is it that teaches us what acceptance, limitless acceptance is all about, is moms. You know, oftentimes, we talk about God as our father. But did you know that the scripture also teaches us that God is like our mother as well? And there's a verse from Isaiah 66 that is, As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. God has fatherly characteristics, but he also has motherly characteristics. All right, so it's, not, it's obviously not a gender thing. So it's not what we're trying to say right here. When you talk about acceptance, you have to talk about moms. Because moms teach us the most important aspect of acceptance. The most important aspect of being an accepting person, limitless acceptance, is what moms have, which is different than dads, which is one thing. I'm sure this is not across the board, but most of the time, what we learned when we were kids from our moms is moms are never grossed out. Moms are never grossed out. Moms never say, ooh, yucky. Moms never say, that's too dirty for me to touch. Now, dads, we do this all the time. And I started to think to myself, I want to give an example of how I think stuff is too gross. And I said, I just have too many examples. <laughs> so should I tell the story of one time when I'm driving my kids home from school, okay, or practice or whatever, we were something during the day, and my kids were probably, let's say they were like eight and six at the time, or maybe like seven and five, something like that. Should I tell the story of when I'm driving, and all of a sudden, one of my children, my son, got sick and did the vomiting in the car. Not the regular vomiting, what I discovered that day is called projectile vomiting, okay? And vomited all over the place, all over the place. What did I do in that situation? I drove to my house, windows down of course, I parked the car, I called Marianne at work. And I said, this is what happened, we need you to come home right away. And me and my children sat in the car for an hour with the windows down until she came home. And they're like, Dad, we're I'm like, hey, no one's gonna move. Can we unbuckle? Don't I touch anything. We're going to sit in this car, even I'm in the front, buckled up completely. <laughs> until your mother comes and tells us what to do. Like, do we, do we, do we burn the car? Like, I don't know what we do. <laughs> we're gonna wait here. 
Marianne came home, and in 15 minutes, everything was fine. Do I tell the story of one of the rare occasions, the rare occasions where I did something called changing a diaper, okay? And I, unlike most moms, I don't think this is what most people do, insisted to wear two layers of latex gloves and removed my shirt every time I did it, just in case anything got on it. Or should I tell you every mother's cringe story that makes every mom cringe, including my own wife. She knows exactly what I'm gonna say whenever I say this. When my first son was born, my child was born, my wife had a C-section, so you know when they have a C-section, they can't give the baby to the mom. We had read all these things about, you know, the first moment and the hug and the, 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 you know, all that stuff that they tell you and all that stuff, and she can't, okay? So we had this whole thing prepared, and me and stuff like that, and I'm telling you, if you've never seen a C-section, okay, you talk about disgusting, okay? There's like opening her up and like pulling out parts of her body and it's like, here's her pancreas and there's her, you know, like a, whatever, they're pulling stuff out. And all of a sudden they pull out this little thing, looks like an alien, and they're like, that's your son. And they go to me like the father and I go, <laughs> and I kind of froze and I'm like, this is actually what I said. I can't believe I actually said this, okay? I said, can you towel him off? <laughs> and she looked at me like, and of course my wife was kind of knocked out so she, she's learned to forgive me, okay? That's dads. What do moms do? Moms, nothing grosses them out. I've seen with my own eyes. This is not just my wife. I see the other stuff that I see. I see with my own eyes. What does a mother do when her child is about to vomit? I have seen mothers. What do mom do? Child's about to throw. What does mom do? Catch it. <laughs> she go to catch it with her hands. What does a mom do when a child drops a pacifier on the ground? Mom wants to clean it. What does she do? Ah! <laughs> Here's the worst one. Y'all ready? Luckily, it's before lunch. What does a mom do when the kid has a boogie hanging out the nose? <laughs> and then I don't know where it goes. But they just, right, moms? Right, that's what y'all do. Y'all just write. Now, watch me on this one, okay? I know this is going to sound weird, what I'm saying. As unsanitary as that sounds, it's a very good picture of God, but in a more hygienic way. Because God, what we learn from moms is this lesson. Is God accepts me just as I am. God accepts me just as I am. No matter how dirty, no matter how nasty, no matter how gross, no matter how stained, no matter how yucky I feel, God accepts me just as I am. And we know that God accepts us just as we are, but he, accepts, he loves us too much to leave us there. And we all know that, and God wants, but today we're not focusing on that part of it. Today we're focusing on that he accepts me, no matter how I come. Because his acceptance, just like mom's, is based on him, not on us. It's based on his character, not on my actions. It's based on who he is, not on what I do. God accepts me just as I am. Now, right off the bat, some people are going to struggle with this message. I'm telling you that right off the bat. Some people are gonna struggle with this, especially if you are a black and white, divide the world into right and wrong kind of a person. And I'll be honest, by my nature, that's how I am. And some people are very much struggle with the idea because we like good and bad. We like right and wrong. We like with us or against us. We like to divide the world into those two categories. And you know what? On the surface, I agree with you. It makes sense to me. But here's the thing. Here's the problem of the world today. The problem of the world today is we think that just because that's how I see it means that's what's right. 
take this one to your social media friends. Just because you see it a certain way and you're convinced of something a certain way doesn't mean that it's right. It just means that's how you see it. So in my eyes and in your eyes too, you know what? There are some sins that make you too dirty to be part of the church. That's how I see it too. I agree. I think we should get a sign. And the sign would say, if you struggle with these, I remember reading a book one time, it was called Respectable Sins. And it divided the world into the respectable ones and the non-respectable ones. Okay, so the respectable ones are like, oh, I struggle with pride because I'm just so good. Or I struggle with, you know, judging because of all the heathen around me. So there's like the respectable ones that we don't mind confessing. But what about the unacceptable ones, the unrespectable ones? I agree. Let's put a sign up and let's say these are unacceptable in the church. So somebody who struggles with homosexuality, same-sex attraction, not sure where they stand, unacceptable. We can't accept them in the church. Someone who got pregnant when they were a teenager, made a mistake, had a baby, and decided to proudly keep the child as opposed to get rid of the child. I'm telling you, I'm not saying, I'm going to say this, you're not going to laugh, I'm not saying this is a joke. Some people think if you voted for Trump, you shouldn't be allowed in the church. Hey, you know what? I agree. Let's come up with a list. Let's come up with a list of the unacceptable sins, what makes you too bad. Let's post it on the wall. Let's give it to people as they come in and say, hey, you know what? If you struggle with any of these, no, thank you. You don't fit right here. Makes sense to me, makes sense to you. But here's the problem. What if what makes sense to me is against what Jesus taught? Like, what if, this is going to be a hard one for some people, what if there's nothing that makes you unacceptable to God? What if there's no sin that would make you too gross that Jesus would accept you? Don't believe me? Let me ask you a question. What is the worst, the worst way to meet God? If you had to choose how you do not want to meet God, like you can meet God, you know what I mean, here at church, that's a great way to meet God. You meet God, you know, when you're visiting like a homeless person, something like that, okay, that's great. What's the worst way to meet God? Well, I'll throw out an example for you. Here's a story from John chapter 8. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him, Jesus, a woman caught in adultery. There you go, there's our winner. There's the winner for the day, ladies and gentlemen, because here's a woman who is not accused of adultery. This is not a woman who is, you know, they're speculating. This is a woman who was caught in the act. And I picture it, that she was dragged out, probably naked, maybe grabbed a sheet to try to cover herself, and maybe she got something. But maybe she's just lying there naked in front of all the whole town. And the Pharisees, and they say to him, when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that we should, that she sh such should be stoned, but what do you say? There is not a worse way to meet Jesus. Like, you can say anything that you've ever done, this is the worst possible way to say, hi, Jesus, my name is. If there's anyone who would be unacceptable to God, it'd be this lady. I'm trying to picture it in myself. Forgive the analogy. Okay, forgive the analogy. I know it's kind of gross, but again, we're before lunch and we're just kind of on this topic. So I'm trying to picture to myself how this lady must have felt. And I went back to a story of a girl. This is probably third grade, I think it was, or maybe second grade. A girl, and I still remember her name. This is how much it bears on my mind. I remember her name. I wasn't even friends with her, but I remember her name. Who had an accident on herself. <laughs> like, she went to the bathroom on herself. And I remembered how mean everyone was. They made fun of her. 
Like, I'm saying right now, I'm a 41-year-old man, and I remember the name of the girl I had never spoken to, but I remember peed on herself that one day, and she must have felt so shame, so embarrassed, humiliated, like crawl into a hole. And I think this lady felt worse. So again, forgive my analogy. I'm sorry, I'm kind of disgusting right here, but we're just talking about it. We're not talking actually seeing it. We're talking. I think this lady, what's worse than peeing on yourself in third grade in school? Imagine diarrhea on yourself. That's right, I said diarrhea. The diarrhea, the wet, the slimy, the like call the housekeeping staff kind of diarrhea. And imagine the shame, the disgust of the diarrhea on yourself. Any sin to God equals diarrhea poop in your pants. Because God is all holy, means 100%. So even the smallest, like the smallest speck of diarrhea is still a blemish. Like, let me ask you this question. Forget about God. God is all holy. You have a dinner table. How much diarrhea can I put on your dinner table before you say, like, that's too much? Like, if I put just a little bit of diarrhea, is that okay? Like, just an ounce, not a pound, just a little ounce. If I put, like, you know, okay, maybe not diarrhea, just regular poop, like the round, like the, like what? How much diarrhea or poop can you accept on your dinner table? What textures are okay? What colors are okay? You would say, as evidenced by everything that's happening right in front of me right now, you say, Father Anthony, it doesn't matter what shape it is. Doesn't matter the texture. Doesn't matter red, yellow, black, white, all nasty in his sight, okay? Any amount of diarrhea is disgusting. Anyone disagree? Well, here comes diarrhea lady. Caught in the act. The horror, the shame, the guilt. Thrown down in the midst of men, all with stones, ready to stone her. But you know what? We're not going to stone her quite yet. We want to shame her a little bit more. And they bring Jesus. And Jesus is now standing in this circle. She feels like, I'd rather the earth open and swallow me than continue this one second longer. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? And before we read what happens next, some of you probably know the story. Before we read it, I just want you to know this. As I'm saying this, I promise you 100%, there are people who are sitting here today who feel exactly that way. There are people who are sitting here today who feel unlovable to God unacceptable to God. And even more so, I'll take another step. There are people in your life who are not here today because they feel that. And you've invited them to church. And you've told them, come to my church. And they want with all their heart to be here. But they don't feel like they could be accepted. They don't feel like people would accept them or God would accept them. They feel too unlovable. They feel too ashamed. I guarantee you, maybe this is why your brother doesn't go to church. Maybe this is why your sister refuses to come with you. Maybe this is why your neighbor, you're like, you would love my church. But maybe this is why they don't come. Because they feel unacceptable to God. They feel like they pooped their pants too bad. And now let's read what happens next. Verse 6. This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when he continued asking him, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now we don't know exactly what Jesus wrote on the floor, but I'll tell you what tradition says, and some people believe, and I'll go with this because it's a cool story. What they say is Jesus stooped down on the ground and began to write the names of the men who were surrounding. 
So he started to write, Jim. And he would look, Bob. He would look, Mark. And he started to write their names. And then he said, he was without sin cast the first stone. And watch what happens next. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. You know what they say he wrote next? Next to their names? Their sins. So he wrote, Bob, adulterer. Jim, thief. Mark, talk bad about Bob. <laughs> and he started to write their sins on the ground. That's why it says, look, then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience. What convicted them? It wasn't what Jesus said. It wasn't until he started to write. Convicted by their conscience. Went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Why it started with the oldest? Because he had the longest list. <laughs> so they started saying, okay, that's enough, that's enough. Okay, Jesus, we love you too. Okay, I gotta go. And then he turns to the lady. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman, poop in her pants, diarrhea everywhere. The woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you realize the implications that this has on us? On you? On the church? We are the body of Christ. So therefore, we as a church must align ourselves and our behaviors with those of Christ. We cannot have Christ behaving this way, and then we are over here behaving this way. Then we are not the church. Then we are not the body. Our behavior must align with his. And the implications of this verse are huge. What this says right here is that there is no such thing as too bad when it comes to God. No such thing as too gross. No such thing as... Can you towel them off before you bring them back? Jesus would never say that, even though we say it all the time. Jesus, like moms, don't see diarrhea. They see sick child. Dads, we see mess. Moms see sick child in need of a hug, in need of help. That's why says there, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Don't misread, go and sin no more. Don't think that means Jesus was preaching to her and Jesus was teaching her because Jesus was not doing that first. The order is important. Jesus said, nobody condemn her. Everyone leave. Jesus stuck his neck out, saved her life, and then he preached to her the truth. And the order is important because we want to preach and then help. And that's not how it works. I'm the number one who's most guilty of this. I'm the number one who's most guilty of this. You know what I do with my kids? I do this all the time. This is so bad, and I shouldn't do this. My kid, carry a tray, spill it, spill it all over himself. Well, you know, son, it's because the tray was not proportionately stacked, and because you weren't looking ahead, and this is what the fit, and I explain to him physics. And I, I feel God sometimes saying, shut up. Stop preaching. Help the kid. Clean the kid. Just give the kid a hug. And I'm telling you, I feel that. I, I'm telling you, that's a personal message for me. It's not that the preaching doesn't have a place, but it's not the right time. It's hug first, preach second. We in the church have become people know the church as preach first, hug second. That's how the church is known today, and that's sad because that's not Jesus. Your friends who feel unwelcome in church, who feel like I would never be able to fit in there, is because they think they're going to come in here with their mess. We're going to preach to them, send them off to fix it before we welcome them. 
if that's our behavior, something is not right. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. This is how we should view people who are different, people who are messy, people who pooped in their pants. People accept one another as Christ accepted you. So here's the implication for us, church family. The implication is this. God's limitless acceptance of me must translate to my limitless acceptance of others. God's limitless acceptance of me must translate to my limitless acceptance of others. And you fill in the blank on the others. People who don't think like you. People who don't vote like you. People who sit in the back of the church and talk while you're preaching the sermon like all the worst people in the world. Who is it that you struggle to accept? You say to yourself, God's limitless acceptance of me must translate to my limitless acceptance of others. Let's make this practical. Two weeks ago, I was at a conference in Atlanta called Catalyst. It was about like church leadership and all kinds of fun stuff like that. And one of the speakers there was Brene Brown. I'm sure a lot of you heard of her, TED Talks, all kinds of stuff. She speaks about vulnerability and shame and all this stuff. And she said something. She said, quote, it is hard to hate someone up close. It is hard to hate someone up close. And her point there was that the further distance you put between you and another person, the easier it is to demonize them. So practical. If you don't know anyone in your social circle who has a different political opinion than you, then it's easy for you to think anyone who thinks that is the devil. Because the further you are from people who are different than you, they're demons. If you don't have anyone in your social circle who is a different ethnicity, a different race, a different creed, if you don't have anyone who is different socioeconomic class, if you don't have anyone who is different than you, the further you are, the easier it is to hate. But it's really hard to hate someone when they go from a grouping to a name, to a face, even more importantly, to a story. That's why the greatest atrocities done in the history of mankind was when people lost identity and were just grouped together. Oh, it's the Jews. Do whatever you want to them. It's the Jews. Oh, it's the blacks. Do whatever you want to them. It's the blacks. Oh, it's the poor. Or, oh, it's the rich. And as long as you group people in categories, Easy to do whatever you want. And you could, you could justify whatever kinds of horrible things you want. It's the Republicans. It's the Democrats. It's the liberals. It's the conservatives. This is actually, when Jesus was around, this was no different. The people of God said, oh, those are the Gentiles. Oh, those are the Samaritans. And Jesus, in the middle of that, said, no, 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 no. I don't know Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. I know people with names. That's why Jesus didn't see tax collectors. He saw Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus had a name. Zacchaeus had a mom. Zacchaeus had a dad. Zacchaeus had a story. And Jesus went to Zacchaeus. He didn't see prostitutes and ugly women who steal men's husbands. He saw a Samaritan woman. And she had a name. And she had a story. And she had a hurt that needed healing. He didn't see thieves and murderers. When he was on the cross, he saw Demas, thief on the right, who just witnessed in front of all this world when everyone had forsaken you. Demas said, you're a good man. This John chapter 8 lady, every one of her labels would have been bad. Every grouping that this lady would have been in would have been bad. Jesus saw her as a person. So here is our kind of our takeaway 
make this practical. Instinct tells us to move away from people's mess. Jesus tells us to move towards it. Our instinct is when someone is different, someone is needy, when someone is hurt, when someone is whatever, fill in the blank. Instinct says, move away. Too much work. Not going to be easy. Going to get messy. Going to get your hands dirty. But Jesus says, we move towards it, the mess, not away from it. We've all been there, right? We've all been the hurt ones. We've all been the messy ones. We've all been in the situation where we knew what we were doing was wrong. We knew we needed to change. We knew exactly the mistake that we had made, and we knew and we knew and we knew. And we didn't need somebody to preach to us. We needed somebody to help us. We didn't need somebody to give us Bible verses that tell us why what we're doing is wrong. We needed somebody to give us a hand to help us get out of the pit that we were in. We've all been there. And we are thankful. I am thankful and you are thankful that there were people around me when I was in my mess that ran towards me, not away from me. And that said, even though you're doing one, two, three, four, five, we will run towards your mess and we will help you. And we will not judge you. We will not push you away. We will never say, towel off and then come back. We will run towards you. We will embrace you. Mess and all. And I am who I am today because people embrace the mess. And now it's our job to do the same with others. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9, yeah. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. See, Jesus saw Matthew. They would have seen just tax collectors. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with no names, no faces, no stories, just groupings, just groupings? Why does he eat with that group? Why does he eat with tax collectors? Why does he eat with sinners? And you can fill in your own blank right there. The group that you judge. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He even throws them a bone on this one. When they're saying, why do you sit with those people? He's saying, look, I know they're sick, and I know they got problems, but I'm a doctor, and this is a hospital. So that's what we're here for. Can you imagine the horror if a sick person goes to a doctor and the doctor says, <laughs> can you imagine how you would feel? Can you, like, you can't be a hospital or a doctor if you run away from sick people. Earlier, I said how God is like moms, how they accept us, the disgusting stuff. Let me tell you a flip side of moms. And I know this to be true with my own wife. My wife is the most gentle, nicest, most compassionate human being on the planet. But you hurt her son. You mess with her daughter. You see a different side to Mama Bear. I remember one time in like, my kid was three years old, something like that. First time he went to school, some kid was mean to him. I thought that kid was going to need witness protection. <laughs> How would a mother, moms, there's a lot of moms right here. Dads, pretend, okay. How would a mom feel? You're a mom. You have children. How would a mom feel protective, not just of her child, but a weak child? Because we're protective of our children but more protective of a weak child. Moms, dads, you have a child who has a speech problem, speech deficiency, speech delay. They stutter when they speak. And then 
You find a school that specializes in helping kids overcome this. You send him to the school. The school sends him back. Says, I'm sorry, you need to fix that speech problem before you come here. You say, no, I sent him there to fix the speech problem. And they say, sorry, we can't do that. Fix the problem, then come back. You have a child who's struggling with math. He's failing in his math. He's doing great in every class. He struggles with math. Math is not his thing. You tell him, go to the teacher, son. Ask the teacher for help. The teacher sees him. The teacher says, you know what? I'm sorry. Helping you would take a lot of effort, and it would take a lot of my time. I'd rather spend my time with the kids who don't need as much help, because then I can get home in time to watch my favorite episode or whatever. Let's say you have a daughter who, from a childhood accident, no fault of her own, has a blemish on her face. A blemish. Something like a stain, something that's never going to go away. No fault of her own. She has something on her face. And the girls mock her in school and laugh at her, call her ugly, and tell her, fix your face, and then come back and play with us. How you feel right now? My fear is the way you feel right now is how God feels on Sunday sometimes. Because every week people come to this church and people have blemishes that will never, ever go away. Something on their spiritual resume, a sin, a mistake, a blemish, an ugly, a disgusting, a yes, that was a mistake. And God is sending them to us to help them to accept them, to love them, not to preach to them, not to say, did you know this was a mistake? They know it was a mistake. Every, so some people are quick to jump on it. They need to know their, everybody knows. Everybody knows their mistake. They're in any single person, I promise you, because y'all don't see what I see. They know their mistake. Don't preach. They need to know the truth. They know the truth. They need love. They need acceptance. And then once you've accepted and once you've loved, then you now have a platform to preach the truth. But don't start preaching until you've loved. Don't start preaching until you've loved. Because that's not what Jesus did. What if the guy sitting next to you right now feels that way? Feels unacceptable to God? Then they'll never say it. They'll never show it. But what if that's how they feel? What message are you sending to that person today? This is why every Sunday, I say this every Sunday, after we finish the liturgy, and we have our coffee hour, our refreshments time. And I say, shake someone's hand, give someone a hug, be a smile. You never know what that'll do for someone in the house of God because I promise you, because I get the calls. See, I don't get the calls, I get the calls. I get the calls of the moms saying, Father Anthony, my son, I know he's difficult and I know he's argumentative. And I know, you know what, he struggles to believe in the Bible. And I know he's going to tell you that the Bible's not true and he doesn't know if he believes in God. He struggles with his sexuality and he doesn't know where he falls. He struggles, you know, he made a mistake. Yeah, she got pregnant. I, I get those calls that I know my son is this and I know my daughter is this. But please don't leave them. Please accept them in the church. Please help them. Please don't turn them away. They've been turned away time after time. And they say they'll give it one more chance. And I convince them to come to church one more Sunday. And you now have a chance to change that person's narrative on who God is and who the church is. I hear from people all the time. Father Anthony, I'm never going to go to church because it's all hypocrites. It's all people who will not welcome me, people who won't accept me in the little social. It's all cliques. 
And I say, no, not this church. This church is limitless acceptance. And then you have a chance every Sunday to prove me right or wrong. But I'm telling you this. As much as I told you the mother calling me, the father calling me, I'm saying all of us are going to stand in front of that person's heavenly father one day. He's going to say, I sent this person to church on October 15, 2017, and you don't know what kind of loops and hurdles I overcame to get this person to come to church that one Sunday. You all know me personally? You know why? Like a lot of people, and if you know this about me, I put a lot of effort into my preparation here on Sundays. I put a lot of effort. And the reason why is for that person. Because if it's just you, I don't care about you. Because I can say sorry to you and y'all are okay. But I put a lot of effort for that one person who's coming to church and thinking to themselves, you know what? The preacher's not going to do anything except make me feel bad about my sins. He's not going to say anything relevant to my life. He's going to talk, talk, talk about some kind of nonsense. Not have any. I, 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 I think of that person, and I say, I'm going to stand in front of God, so you know what? Even no one in this church shows up, and no one cares. I'm going to put myself into this thing for that one person. And I'm telling you, when you shake someone's hand, you don't know what message you are sending to a person. Let's flip that. When you walk by a person, when you stand in your social circle, okay, kind of closed, meaning no one come talk to us. We're making plans for lunch, and oh, yeah, yeah, see ya. It's nice to see you. You don't know what message you're sending. You don't know what message you're sending. Every Sunday, you have a chance to change that person's narrative on who God is. Last verse. I'm sorry, limitless acceptance. I'll come back to that. Last verse. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. You want friends in high places? These little ones? The weak ones? You limitlessly accept them. And you now have a friend in a high place. Because their angel always sees the face of God. And what you do for those little ones. Again, parents, you know this. Someone does something for your child when they're sick, when they're weak, when they have a deficiency or a, or a, 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 a handicap, and they lend them that child in your eyes, what that person does. Church, we need to get this right. Limitless acceptance. Can we read this again? Limitless acceptance means what? We believe that every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world. That person is sent by God and should be loved and accepted as such. We do not have a choice on this one. This is not an optional. This is not a, hey, let's do our best to be nicer to people. We have no choice. We are the body of Christ. We represent Christ. We must get this right. And I'm telling you, when we do, when we do, the world will not know what hit it. Because if you want to know what everyone who is not in here today, what the people out there think, or I'm sorry, what they desire, what they want, what they're yearning for, same thing like me and you, is to be accepted for who they are and helped to take that next step. So when we do this, I want you to think to yourself. Jesus thought to himself, who is not in the kingdom because they feel unlovable. And I want you to think that same way. Who is not here in these seats today because they feel like they'd be unacceptable? And you tell them, at my church, now we're limitless acceptance. And we're going to practice it. 
and no matter what anyone comes in the door with. We will accept them. We will try to help them. Okay, we're not, because we're not talking about accepting sin. We're talking about accepting sinner. And there's a big difference, but I don't want to focus on that because you, that can take us in a whole other direction. No matter what kind of poop you got on yourself, no matter how much diarrhea in your pants, we are limitless acceptance out here. And we believe that every single person that God sends to us, that every person that enters our church is sent by God and is the most important person because of that. Let's stand together for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way you accept us. And none of us, Lord, deserves to be standing here. Our sins may appear better on the outside, Lord, but you know the true state of our hearts. We thank you that you have limitlessly accepted us. We pray that you would help us to limitlessly accept every single person who walks in the door of, these church, of this church. Give us the same heart, the same eyes of compassion that you had and that you saw the Samaritan woman, and you saw the, the adulterous woman, and you saw Zacchaeus, and you saw the thief, and you saw Peter when he had sinned. Give us that same heart and those same eyes, Lord, so that we can be your body on this earth and align ourselves with the way you call us to behave. We pray these things in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus, with the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.